God, we love you so much. We thank you, Lord, just for a time this morning to come and to gather together, Lord, as people along the way, Lord, people in need, people that, have, that are just as we are coming before you, God. We pray for this time this morning as we've already been just lifting up your name and, and, and sharing in, in needs and, and celebrating together just what you're doing, God. We thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ, Lord, that in, in the way that you work, the way that you've designed, God, that for your, your, your kingdom work to be done in this world, for us to be cared for, encouraged, strengthened, built up for your purpose, Lord, you, you decided that it was through each other that that work was going to be done. It was through the church that the glorious truth of Jesus would be made known to the world. So God, I pray that that would be our posture, Lord, our expectation this morning, or that we would see that we're here to be something and not just do something to be what you made us to be, to live out an identity. So God, we love you. We give you this time to speak through me, in spite of me. I confess that nothing good can come of, of my words. Nothing, can good, nothing good can come of my outline without the Holy Spirit that you've given to us coming and catching these words of flame in our hearts and lives. So Lord, do your work, God. Let me be used or let me be just cast aside. Let your truth be known. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, guys, we're almost finished with James. We've been trekking through it for, for a while now. I'm a little, uh, but we've been going through James. We've got two more weeks. We've got this week and next week. We started the conclusion of his, his letter last week as we looked at James 5.12. So we're still continuing through his, his closing thoughts. So go ahead, if you can, turn in your Bibles to James 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13 and look through verse 18 today. Um, you can click on your apps. We also use the Version Bible app. So if you have the Bible app on your phone, go to the, event, the, the More tab, look for events. We'll pop up and there's some stuff on there to help you trek along as well as further study and reflection. We'll also have verses on the screen and there's a Bible on the floor around you if you need a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that with you. That's our gift to you. Okay, so we're at James 5.13. Um, as James started his letter, if you recall or you don't, let me just kind of tell you, he started it calling us to, to patience, he call, calling us to perseverance and calling us to prayer. And he's looped through that a few times, and, and he finished like his final exhortations in that same theme, patient perseverance in prayer. And now, in this conclusion, he has just compacted all this once again. So he ended his letter with this, this reinforcing call. Now, in his conclusion, he's calling us to this prayer and patience and perseverance. And, and last week, we mentioned how, how sharing our faith it was kind of just a little freebie caveat that we talked about. But we talked about how for, for those, who are in, those who are following Christ and want to live out his purpose in your life, one of the things that causes guilt in us a lot is, is how often we share our faith or the lack thereof. And we often say, I need to share my faith more. Like, and, you know, that's, we feel that. And the other thing we talked about that breeds a lot of guilt, kind of that self-inducing guilt, is how often we pray. You know, that's another thing we feel a lot of guilt about. I don't pray enough. I need to pray more. And, and there's probably truth, but... God does not want us to feel guilty about that, but he wants us to feel compelled and to hear the invitation. But that's something that we heap guilt on ourselves about. So today, James calls us to prayer uh, once again. And, and to think about kind of the momentum of what he's been teaching us, you know, he said, I want you to persevere with patience in this world that is, that is full of trial, this world that is full of struggle, this world that you find yourself kind of outside and maybe even against at times. He said, so... How do we do that? We see that just the, the overall thesis today is that in order to persevere with great patience and joy and purpose, it takes prayer. 
It's, we, we need to be a people of prayer. So my prayer for us today, and I dare say God's desire, is that we see not only our call to prayer, but also the power of prayer and the gift of prayer, that we would be wooed into the glorious mystery that prayer is. As we see all that it is, that it would just woo us in to this posture of like, as I am today, I come before you, God, and I don't even understand all the mysteries of like where your sovereign work and will and power works with the way I've, I'm compelled to pray, but just that we would be able to just overall just be wooed into the glorious work and the mystery of prayer. So as we pick up in verse 13 in chapter 5, we see that James is addressing the suffering that the people, his, his audience, the, the, those that were Jewish that are now converted and following Christ, that they, were, that they were facing as marginalized and persecuted as scattered believers under Roman rule. You've got to think about it. It's not just that they were oppressed by the Roman rule. They were also oppressed by the Jewish the, the traditional people of Israel, the traditional Jewish church, because they were of a whole new way. So now they were kind of double outcasts. So he's, he's addressing this, and he's saying, okay, so here we go. Persevere with patience and joy. Here's how it is. So we were picking up with that momentum as we come into verse 13. I'm going to read uh, the, let's start with just verse 13. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So that's where we start. Suffering pray, cheerful praise or pray. So a few things to see here as we think about this, this dichotomy of, of a call to prayer. Um, first, just as we already said, this, this call to prayer follows a call to patient perseverance. So we must see that, that as, we, as we as believers seek out to be patient, as Christ followers seek out to be patient in this world where, where we are awaiting the, the greater fulfillment, again, when, in Christ's return in our, in our restoration, when there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears, as we wait patiently, we see that this right here, just this charge tells us that patience does not equal passivity. It is not to be passive. It is not to be still. It is not to just to sit in your room in the corner where it's the safest and to wait. We see that the, because there is a necessity to pray in the midst of suffering, we see that there is a work to be done and that prayer is one of the ways to be active. Prayer is a powerful work against passivity. Prayer requires humility, it requires surrender, it requires boldness, it requires you to give of yourself, it requires you to focus outward. I love how uh, I heard Erwin McManus, a, a pastor of Mosaic, the, the uh, lead pastor of Mosaic Church in, in L.A., describe prayer one time. He said, prayer is spiritual activism. It is. It is us going on behalf of, it's us stepping into, it's spiritual activism. Prayer makes our patience purposeful. Over and over again throughout James's letter, we've been exhorted and even commanded to pray. It's just this, this resounding bell that he's been ringing. We've got to be a people of prayer. And all throughout James, the promise of our prayers was not to eliminate all of the troubles. If you go back and read that, and really if you go look at all of Scripture, the, the compelling to pray, the exhortation of prayer, to prayer the, the, the goal is never... Pray that all of your pain will cease. Pray that it will all go well for you, that you'll face no problems. That's never what we're exhorted to pray. All throughout James, it was never an idea that your prayers would make the struggle stop. As we see in Scripture and throughout this letter, 
the power of prayer, the purpose of prayer, is that we would understand and rely and rest in the supernatural strength and wisdom and find that supernatural strength and wisdom to endure with peace, power, and purpose in a way that reflects the glorious strength and truth of God given to us in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit that is in us. That is why we're compelled to pray over and over again, not just to avoid pain, but to actually persevere in the midst of it, not just to avoid struggle, but to actually thrive and shine a brighter light on the glory of God and the truth of Jesus in the midst of it. So we should and must pray when we are in need. I mean, after all, again, who who else better to go to? Who Who else is better equipped than to bring our need to our holy creator, sovereign God? Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. He cares for you more than anybody else. He loves you more than anybody else. He's for you more than anybody else. So who better to bring your needs to than him? So we should definitely bring our needs to God. We should definitely pray as specifically as we feel like we are, as, as we can. And then we need to trust all to God's will and to his goodness. Let us just be reminded one more time that James has been exhorting us in how to live an undivided life. Remember, as we talked about, like this whole point is that a work has been done in Christ. When you come to the understanding that we were created for a holy purpose, we were created for union with God, and in the fall and the sin of Adam and Eve, in our, in our own sin, we found that separation, we found that brokenness of all relationship between man and God, between man and himself, between man and other mankind and other mankind, and between mankind and creation. We see that all was fractured, and then in Christ, all was restored. And so James, the whole letter has been saying, okay, so this work is done in you. You've been reconciled, redeemed, and made whole. Now, let me remind you, let me show you how to live this undivided life. That's just been this umbrella theme. Um, and so that he's calling us to this reality of this undivided life. And that's, again, as he's coming through and, and, um, and, and teaching us this point of prayer, we have to remember this. James is saying when your heart is God's, your life is God's, and that you see that he is the sovereign good creator God, and there's no need that his grace is not sufficient for, and no blessing that has not been provided by his hand. I don't know how clearly that came out, because I just read it, and I wasn't even, I was kind of mechanical in that moment, so let me just say it again. Um, I'm going to stretch for a minute. I'm really sorry. Hold on. <laughs> it's like... I have like a hot ice pick stabbing in my neck right now. Hold on. This is going to translate really well to uh, an audio, audio <laughs> sermon for the people that aren't here. Mm. Oh, my goodness. I don't know how to fix it. <sighs> um, so when we see in our undivided life, I'm just going to repeat that just to get me there. He's saying when, when we are reconciled or redeemed and, and we've given our heart to God, we see that our life is also God's. And we see that in that, God's sovereign goodness, and that he, in that he is also our creator. And because of who he is and what he's done for us, there's no need that his grace is not sufficient for and no blessing in our life, no gift, no goodness in our life that has not been provided by his hand. So when we think about the, the struggle and we think about the time, you know, the times of, of want and the times of plenty. Which one is harder for you to pray in? 
I th- you know, it's like I, as I first went through this, I thought it's harder for me to pray when, when, all, when things are great, when things are good. I, I don't think about praying. And, and I thought that's true for everybody. It's kind of applied it to everybody. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think that there are some who, who pray a lot when things are bad and some who, who pray only when things are good. And, I, and so I asked that question to you. Which one, where do you find it harder for you to pray? When you're suffering or when things are abundant and things are smooth? So if, as you think on that, if you see that your, your, your prayers are, are being driven by either great need and great abundance, you know, when you see that that's the case, that evidence is that either way, great need or great abundance, that, see, that shows, <laughs> this is really difficult, that, that you have a, an elevated view of self and a diminished view of God. Or at the very least, an elevated view of the created things and a diminished view of the creator. If you, if you hunker down in suffering and forget to pray in the suffering, you've forgotten that God is the God of grace and strength. And you've decided to be your own savior, securing your own means for deliverance, whether it's by your own hands or by the things of this world. So when we see that, that in, in suffering we don't turn to God, that's what that reflects. When we see that when we, when we only pray in suffering, that we forget to pray when it's good, we have forgotten that God is always present, that we need Him for the breath that we breathe at any moment, and that every good and perfect gift comes from Him. In those moments, you somehow believe that you or some other created thing is responsible for your peace and satisfaction. So God is responsible for all. He's good in all. He, he, he is present in all things. He's never, he never abandons. He never, t- he never takes a nap. He's always active, and his will is good, his word is good, his way is good. And so, so let us be a people of prayer in all circumstances. And when we see in, in, in Scripture, and especially in the Hebraic tradition, which James was writing to the people of Israel, so he's writing kind of to the context of, of the Hebrews, of the people of Israel, we see that when we see something communicated in these, in this, these two uh, great contrasts, it is not just to generalize, it is actually to communicate, to say, we are to pray in all circumstances. So he's not just saying, let's hit the extremes. He's communicating the extremes to say, we pray in these extremes and everything in between. And so we should just be, what James is inviting us to is because, because we are so different, because we have been so changed and our, our, our hope is so real, just a posture of prayer, a posture of prayer, people of prayer, people of praise and a prayer, people of humility and the people of, of boldness, this is who we are in Christ. So now that James has compelled us to pray, let us see the way in which we share prayer as a community. So we're going to read 14 and 15 real quick. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, Let's just notice that at this point, James assumes that we get that prayer should be shared amongst the body of Christ, the church. He, just, he moves immediately seamlessly into this, this expression of how prayer occupies our space together. So here's, here's what we'll look for in this section. We want to see the role of elders in prayer, 
and the role of the church in prayer, and of course, the work of prayer itself. So first, the role of the elders, just to be clear, I think there's just some room for teaching here so, as to, so that we can have some right observations and some right understandings. To be clear, this is not putting the elders in some greater category of prayer ability or prayer responsibility. To be clear, that is not what we're being called to here. This is speaking to the unique circumstances. If you look at the, kind of the, the understanding of the church at the time and the context, this is speaking to the unique circumstance where there is someone in the local body, in this, this gathered people that are called together, that are somehow incapacitated and unable to come together with the body of Christ. In that situation, it's saying, hey, the elders, if nobody else, the elders will be the ones who step in, go to them, and pray for them, and pray for their healing. But the idea is not that the elders are the only ones who do that. Elders are not the only ones who are supposed to administer this kind of care. You know, as in, the, in our American culture, because on our website it says Heath Haynes, lead pastor slash elder, and I am I'm the paid pastoral staff, um, you know, as far as in that category goes, we are an elder-led church. It's myself and Hiro and Kurt pastorally appointed where Hiro, where Kurt was. That's where he was. Um, but pastorally, we, we lead as equals. Pastorally, we carry the same authority. So by habit, you often hear us say, Heath and the elders. Just so you know, to be really clear, that is totally misspoken. It is the elders, Heath, Kurt, Hiro. The elders, Hiro, Kurt, Heath, the Hiro. The order doesn't matter. When, when we're making decisions and when it comes to like the pastoral leadership of our church, my vote doesn't count as more than anyone else's in that, in that space. We work together to where we can come to a, a unified consensus of how we go forward, and then we, we humbly try to lead and steward the church in that direction. So then how that pl- plays out in this situation, so it's normal for me to get called and said, you know, Heath, I need, I need you to come and pray for me. I need help. I need this. I need that. And I love that. I love that I can get that phone call. But immediately my first question is, especially if I know this person, I know they're amongst community, I'll ask them, have you shared this with anyone that's in your life every day? Now, if I am that close, close friend, I don't ask that question. It makes sense, right? Because we're a family. If I'm that close friend, I just jump right in. If I'm not, if I'm like just a, a minute, like a church acquaintance and I'm a leader as a pastor elder, then I say, well, hey, have you shared this with those in your small group? Have you shared this with those that know you, that are with you every day, that, that can know like the deeper things about you? And I, and I encourage them and exhort them to bring that community in. And possibly sometimes, believe it or not, I actually don't step in to be tangibly there. Sometimes it's better for those that are closer to them to step into things that are sensitive. And now, again, I'm, if they still persist, I love the opportunity. And I've, I, I count it such a blessing, and I'm humbled that, that people would tr- entrust anything to me, especially when they don't even know me that much. And so, so to, to make sure we're really clear, I love every opportunity. But it is healthier if the entire body of Christ, the priesthood of believers, are involved in shepherding and caring for one another. Cool? So that's, that is our understanding here. The rich, that's, our, that's our heart. That's what we want to strive after. And that's what we try to do. So we try to, we try to reinforce that just about by the way that we respond. And you'll see this even more clearly in a moment of the way the body of Christ works. So here we see them. So also we see this mention of the anointing with oil. And, and maybe that piques your interest. Maybe it doesn't. But for those that do, let me address it because it matters. Um, what do we do? 
with kind of this, this idea, like what's the oil about? What's it for? There are a few interpretations here, so let me just hit them a few. Let, let me hit them, hit the major ones, and I'll try, try to share with you kind of how, how we look at it. Um, one possible understanding is that the oil is, is medicinal. At the time, it was common to use oils to treat maladies. Again, just as essential oils today, like there's, they have physical impact on you. Like it's, it's just a legit thing. There's not anything mystical about it. There's just God created things to help his creation, and there are things in oils that actually help us. And so in the same way at the time, they, would, they, were, they didn't have synthetic medicines. They had natural medicines, and so they would combine different things. And it was known that oils would be used to treat medicine. So you could read this as saying, so elders, when you pray, you know, pray as well as kind of treat the ailment. And that's, that doesn't seem crazy. And, and, and I would say that probably happened to some degree. As we were gathering to pray for healing, we also treated the sickness. I don't think the context, and even just logically, that it makes sense that the elders would be the one to apply medicinal help. There were people that were trained for that. There were doctors. There were, there were caregivers that were trained for that. And so it doesn't seem to fit the context or even kind of the framework to say that the elders were the ones, for some reason, that would step in to apply medicinal help. And so I, I, would, I would say, even though if someone were to hold that, I would say, okay, that's great. But that's not what I would say. Another possible view would be one that is common if you grew up in the Catholic Church, maybe something that sounds familiar. You, you hear anointing oil, and, and, and with that, that would be that the anointing of oil was a sacramental work uh, which removed kind of remnants of sin and strengthened the soul. This was instituted by the Catholic Church, you know, kind of pr- a pretty good bit of time after this was written, but you see it. It was, it was you know, a long time ago for us, but pretty good bit of time after this time frame that the Catholic Church started treating uh, the anointing of oil this way. Um, there's really no contextual basis to, to say that that would be a faithful understanding of what's being done here. Um, so again, we would just say that's not what we're talking about here. Um, so then another option, and where I believe James is leading us to today, is that the anointing of oil while praying for healing from sickness is symbolic. It's symbolic. Often in Scripture, when we see anointing, just uh, in general, we're seeing that someone or something is being set apart for a particular purpose, okay? And so in most of the Old Testament passages where we see the word anoint, it's referring to the work of consecration. So as we pray for healing and anoint with oil, we're calling us to the confidence that all of our life is God's, that all of our life belongs to God, that his plans are for his glory and for our good, so we can rest that his will will be done and that that gives us peace because we recall, we recall that we are set apart in Christ. We are a people set apart for a holy purpose completely. And so it's a call to that, a call to remembrance. So no matter how you interpret this, though, what we know, what we must remember that any work of power through prayer comes from God and God alone. Nothing else. Through God and God alone, not through any external work, but from God and God alone. He is the power of prayer. So, so what about this bringing together of sin and sickness? Did we read that yet? Um, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I think we, yeah, we read that, right? Let's write it there. Well, not that part, but 15 says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right, so we read, that's verse 15. And so, so what do we do? With that, is this saying that all sickness is directly caused by sin? You know, like, okay, you sinned, now you get a cough. 
That's a worse sin. Now you get the flu. That's a really bad sin. We'll just stop there because we start getting in weird categories. But like, is that what it's saying? It's, it's not. We can see from Scripture that some sickness is caused by sin, but not all sickness is directly a result of sin. We see that some sickness is. I mean, we've read this during our time of communion every week. With this, every now and then we come to this verse, but 1 Corinthians 11, 29-30 says, for, if anyone, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So, somehow, sin can directly be causing weakness, sickness, and death. Okay, so if that doesn't make you take sin seriously up to this point, maybe that will. Um, we also see all throughout Scripture, the righteous became sick and died. And let us not forget that it is appointed to every person to die, and then comes judgment. Everyone dies. So, we die mostly from somehow our body giving out. That could be weakness, illness, sickness, right? So we see all throughout Scripture righteous people dying. For, for one that we all know, just to, to reference it for you, in, in David, this is David, the, the, the one who was a man after God's own heart. Yes, he sinned greatly, but he was also restored and faithful for his last days. And we see that as he was coming to the end of his life, he was so sick and weak that he, he couldn't get warm no matter what he did. He was that sick to the point that he finally died. He was faithful to the end, even in his sin and discretions earlier on. He was restored and repentant. And we see he, he is the measure of the kind of king God wants for the people of Israel throughout the rest of their, their time leading up to Jesus. So we see that he died of sickness. So again, that wasn't necessarily directly because of his sin at any time during that. So at the same time, while not all sickness is because of sin, we can say that ultimately all sickness Ultimately, not directly, ultimately, all sickness is because of sin, right? How can, how can we say that? It is only because of the fall, the entering of sin into the world and into you and me, that there is sickness at all, that there is death at all. And so, not all sin is because of sin, not all sickness is because of sin, but directly, but all sin is because of sin. Dang it. All sickness is because of sin, ultimately. So, that go ahead. That brings us to kind of the next verse, verse 16. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This could make us say, well, okay, okay, I get it now. He's talking about the ultimate spiritual healing here. Now, I really do think prior to this, he is talking about physical healing. Like people that need physical healing, pray for them. But then he also bridges the gap to the most important thing, the spiritual healing. So as we've kind of followed the trajectory of this that James is taking us on, we come to this place of seeing that we're to pray for the sick and pray for the deliverance from sin and pray together as we do so. Because ultimately, if you get healed from being sick for that time, eventually you're going to, something else is going to happen. Lazarus was raised from the dead. He died again one day. He's still not here. People get cured from cancer still today. Eventually, they're going to pass away. So, again, the ultimate hope is not just temporary deliverance, 
So, so James is bringing us to that ultimate need. So this, this is the only passage in the New Testament that tells us to confess our sins to one another. And yet it's in the context of praying for healing. Why? So here's where it all comes together for us. So as we pray for the sick, we're always reminded of our greatest need. Again, the evidence of sickness is an evidence of brokenness, the evidence of our fallen world, the evidence of our need for a Messiah, for Jesus to come and to step in and redeem and save. Also, because some sickness is caused by sin, it's a great time to reflect and confess any needed sin. It's like, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Do Is there anything that I need to confess and repent of? It's a great time to do that. We're just reminded of our frailty. We're reminded of our need. So let's take advantage of that. It's also a great time to pray for deliverance from sin because we know that when our flesh is weak, we're more susceptible to temptations of the devil. He is a tempter. He's a liar. He's looking for weakness. Our spirit's strong. Our flesh is weak. So when are you more susceptible? When you're wiped out, when you're sick, when you're weak. So again, he's aware of all this. And so he's like, hey, this is a great time. So confess your sins to one another. Bring it to the light. See the bigger picture. So the crescendo of this text is that the call to prayer is a call to pray together. We started, a, we started, about, um, we started out earlier labeling prayer as spiritual activism. So thinking about that, what we've been talking about, group participation time, okay? Why do we pray? Let's start with God. Why do we pray we pray because God is worthy. I can't point. Because God is worthy. What else? Powerful. Worthy. Powerful. Holy. That's great. What's it? Good. I heard one. Listening. Love it. Detailed. Attentive. Great. Sovereign. Everlasting. Needed. Able. Anything else? God is. We pray because God is. Faithful. Who else? Caring. Okay. We get the picture, right? There's, we could keep going. We, it's inexhaustible to think about the goodness and power of our God. We also pray because we are broken, weak. Weak. <laughs> what else? We are. We pray because we are. Needy. Short-sighted. Forgetful. Sinful. What did you say, Rebecca? Dumb. Dumb. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> hmm. What's that? Incomplete. That's a good one, too. What, Sam? Finite. Finite. Temporary. Meant for more. Love it. Children of God. I love that. Well, we see the picture. God is, God is good. We're in need. So when we pray together, we're entering into this space of need for one another. We're coming in and calling each other to the reality of who that is and identifying with each other in our need. We should be really good at praying for one another, right? Because we know our frailty. We know our need. And we know that we're all there. Some questions to consider that will drive a right posture of prayer. Do we love those around us as God has loved us in Christ? Do we have that posture of benevolence? Do we have that posture of generosity? Do we have that posture of sacrificial love? Are we interruptible? Are we, are we proactive? Do we understand that we are advocates? Each one of us. As we are in Christ, we've been made new, but we've also been given a new purpose and a new power in the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. 
So we're actually advocates the same way that he advocated for us. He came into our world, to our need, met our need before we ever changed. He changed us. He steps in on our behalf. His righteousness is ours. He intercedes for us. Do you believe you're an advocate? Do you know that you are? Do you understand? Do you see that God has given us responsibility for his mission in this world? The church is his strategy. It's his plan A and there is no plan B. Yes, he's sovereign over all things. His work will be done. As far as his active work in this world, he means for it to happen through the church. Do you understand the fullness of God's love? Bottom line. So here's our formula for being motivated for prayer. It's going to be, let's put it on the screen. Our great need plus God's great character plus God's ability equals our fervent, effective prayer. Our great need plus God's great character plus God's ability equals our fervent prayer. So verse 16 says that the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. This is speaking to the person that has the righteousness of Christ. It is not speaking to the person that has not sinned in three days. I would submit that that's impossible. Um, I had a friend in college that would swear he would make it through many days without sinning. And I would say, you just sinned because you're a liar. So, <laughs> Or arrogant. I don't know. Either way. Um, but this is not speaking to the person that is outwardly just better at being righteous, so therefore their prayers are more effective. Because after all, where is the power in our prayers? It's not in our, in our words, in our eloquence. It's not in our fervency, in our, in our passion, and, and it's not in our frequency. The power of our prayers is, again, and we gave an illustration about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about prayer last time, but the power of our prayers is in God himself. Again, Faith is important, but faith is only good if it's in the right things. You can have faith in worldly things all you want, but they will fail you every time. That's why we say the faith of a mustard seed of mustard seed of a mustard seed is enough to move a mountain, because God is the one who works. God is the one who facilitates in power. So after all, that's our comfort. That's our push. That's our boldness. It's his power, his love, his motive, not ours, that achieves the work. So let us strive to have pure motive. Let us strive to have humble hearts. Let us strive to have bold, courageous prayers. So lastly, moving quickly, sort of, James 5, 17 through 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I wish I had time just to go into this story and sit in it, because it is this, this happening. It's more than a story, this, this event, because it's amazing to see the whole big picture of why God did, the, God did what he did the way that he did it through Elijah. But for now, for our sake, and I think the point of what James is, is calling us to, um, we have to see this. Elijah did this, but don't get caught up in what he did. It's not, about, it's not just about the, the amazing sign of him being able to make it stop raining and then rain again by his prayers. The point that James wants us all to see is that because God has given us the Holy Spirit and his will over our lives and his will, 
his sovereign will is what governs, our prayers can accomplish way more than we could ever, ever expect. And we are all invited into it. We're all invited and expected to have this kind of prayer. That is outlandish to think that a normal person could say, stop raining. And it doesn't rain for three, three and a half years. And then a normal person says, okay, rain again. And it starts raining. Does that seem accessible to any of you? James is saying it is. James is saying that is the way of life, the posture of prayer we are invited into. The point here is, and I'm, I'm kind of beating this dead horse, but the point is that it is not our power to wield. We don't get to go in and have some whim that I want to do something amazing for God, so I'm going to go out and contrive some sign and wonder. The point is that God's will was that the, those opposing would be humbled. By the way, the, the lower G God that Elijah was confronting was by what was the God of rain. No coincidence. God wanted to show his glory. He wanted to show his majesty. He wanted his will to be done. And he used Elijah to pray his will and to facilitate his will. So if you get caught up in how, do, how does our prayer life work in a so, underneath a sovereign God? Why do we pray at all? How do we affect change? I don't know. But somehow, in God's will, he stirs our hearts and brings us into a place that we pray with great boldness and faith. We pray that his will will be done. And sometimes we have it in those terms of, God, this is your will, pray. And other times, it's just these, these stirrings and desires that we pray up, and we pray the will up, and we pray them. And then we say, so God, here you go, best I got, best as I know. I think this is what you're leading me to, and I trust your sovereign will over it all. And I trust your power, and I trust your, your goodness over all things. So the point is, is that this way of life, this way of prayer, this power of prayer is for the normal people that are in Christ. Because <laughs> in Christ, we're not normal anymore. The Holy Spirit is in you. The truth is transforming you. God's will is now your will. When we pray, let us pray with a sense of expectancy full of faith. When we pray, let us pray with a posture that we're offering all of ourselves to be part of God's divine resources to answer those prayers. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. I'm going to slow it down. When we pray, let us pray with a posture that we are offering all of ourselves to be part of God's divine resources to meet those needs, to answer those prayers. Because we can pray all we want. For, Lord, for, for God to, to work, to meet this felt need, to deliver this person, to, for this person to know their love, for this person to see grace. But if, if that's the extent of our prayer and we don't have this posture, that and God, my life is a blank check. However you want to facilitate that, if I'm a part of it, man, give me grace, give me humility, and give me strength to step into that. That's the posture of our prayer. So just practically, real quick, kind of to, to share the, the view of how kind of we want to share this prayer life together as the bridge, we, we pray often in worship. We come together in these times on Sunday so that we could gather, be strengthened, exhort one another, find unity in, the, in, in truth and in Christ, and go out and live this life scattered for the gospel being the light of Jesus. But we pray often together just here in the space. Also in the mornings, uh, Sam leads uh, a prayer team on Sunday mornings, and they come together and pray for Sundays as well as some other uh, needs they know about. We have a prayer team. You, you heard the filling out the prayer card. That goes to it. How many, how many people are on that team? I mean, 40 or something like that? I don't know, 20, 30. It's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that love to pray. 
here, and, and they truly, it goes out and people pray very, very intentionally, actively, in a very real way, they pray. So we have those prayer cards. We also have uh, every second Monday night, we gather in our office at 1223 West Drew, and we pray together. We kind of pray kingdom, kind of kingdom work prayers, starting with us, how we can be used and, and kind of grow to be more, more like God, more living like citizens of the kingdom and going out all the way to the ends of the earth, including praying for our missions partners. So we do that. We pray in our small groups. We, we, and then hopefully the truest expression of a healthy church's prayer life is that it would extend to the living rooms, to the coffee shops, to the weekends away, to the, just the daily random conversations that as we recognize how good God is, we recognize our need and the need of this world, that we're moved to pray. We're moved to pray in confession. We're moved to pray in adoration. We're moved to pray in purpose. That is, that's, the, that's the view of the church. That's the beauty when we think about the church is that we would be in awe of God and share in that awe, praying when we are suffering and praying when we are cheerful, giving all glory to Him. It's a thread in every conversation. How often do you say, I'll pray for you, and then don't pray? Why not just say, hey, let me pray for you right now? It's great encouragement. 